from uh, Luke 24, verses 1 to 12, and then John th- uh, 12, 23 to 24, and then John 3, verse 16. So Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. The resurrection. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright... The women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb, Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now we turn to John, chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to St. Paul's, especially if you're... Uh, a newcomer. Thank you, Ted, for your reading as well. I am, I'm Tom. I'm the almost new vicar. It's certainly my first Easter here, and it's a delight to be with you on this special day. And um, I just uh, need to say as well, congratulations for getting up early. Was it difficult for anyone? It was a bit of a nasty shot, wasn't it? I knew things were bad when my alarm clock woke me up rather than my children. And uh, I know the, uh, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury and the Pope apparently are hatching a plot to fix the date of Easter. I'm going to put in a word, should they consult me, uh, for not the weekends that the clocks change. But anyway, I'm sure they won't ask me. 
Here we are, it's Easter Day, and uh, Easter is a wonderful time, isn't it? The whole Easter weekend, a time for feasting, hopefully, certainly it is for us, a time for resting, apart from this morning, obviously, and uh, a time as well for many uh, to be with friends and to be with family. Yet it's also a time for reflecting on questions of faith, isn't it? Especially um, in the context of this week, where we saw those horrific bombings in Brussels, which uh, shocked many of us. And I'm sure if you're like me, when you heard about what had happened, something in you would have screamed out, this is evil, this is wrong, this is the complete opposite of what God would have us do. Yet it begs the question then, doesn't it, what do Christians believe about God and his purposes? The perpetrators of that crime obviously believed one thing. But what is the truth? What do we believe about God's character and what he calls us to and how he can inspire us in his lives? It seems fitting in this week and especially at Easter just to reflect on those things and that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to do it through what is arguably the most famous verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16. That was the one that Ted finished with. Just to remind you of the words, you can see them on the screen there. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'm going to make three simple points from that verse that correspond to three simple questions that we might have about Christianity and indeed human history. And they are these. Why? First of all, why did God send Jesus into the world to live, then to die, and then to rise again? Second, what did it achieve? What was the purpose of it? And third, how should we respond? If this was the weekend that changed human history, how should we respond to that? So, the answer to the first question then comes in the first four words of that famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Love is what motivated him. And it's not a weak, moderate sort of love like the love we tend to show to others. Rather, it's a love that is overwhelming, that is complete, that is unconditional, that's total. A love which is for everyone in the whole world, including, of course, every one of you and me. In fact, the Bible tells us that God can't be anything but loving. 1 John 4 verse 8 tells us God is love. It's his very nature. It's who he is. But how can sending someone to death for the Bible tells us that Jesus was sent to die, be love. It wasn't some great accident or tragedy, the Bible makes that clear. God planned it, he prophesied it. Jesus did as well. So we've got Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament, looking ahead to the death of the suffering servant that God would send. And then Jesus himself mentioned it numerous times, and the angels in that account of the resurrection reminded the women, didn't, didn't they? They said, remember how he told you, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day raised again. Everything was looking ahead 
to the Son of God coming to earth, showing us what God is like, but then dying, being crucified, and then rising again. Why would a loving God do that? That's the question we might rightly ask. And why would Jesus go along with it, devastating though the prospect was? Well, Jesus himself gave us the answer, actually, and that's why I chose that other little passage from John 12. Jesus, to repeat those words, replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His glorification came at the cross. I tell you the truth, he continued, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And who was the seed in this metaphor? It was Jesus himself. The metaphor is about having a right relationship with God, being holy in his sight. For Jesus was the only one who was right with God. For he was the only one who ever lived a perfect life. And the gospel accounts show us that, don't they? He was the only one that did not stay in that relationship with sin. And yet, if Jesus died, the one perfect human being, well, then the possibility emerged of a right relationship with God for everyone, for each of us, indeed for the whole world. For if Jesus, the one righteous seed, could remove the stain of sin for the rest of mankind well, then God could look at us as righteous, as holy too. We could be washed clean and forgiven. God could go from having one son to having many sons and daughters adopted into his family, all made possible because the first and greatest son, Jesus, died in our place. And so, where was love in the events of the cross? It was the reason why God was willing to give up his son, whom he loved. Because it would then fulfill the object of his love for the whole world. It would enable each of us to become and enter an intimate, loving relationship with God. The very thing he desperately longs for for each of us. The thing he made us for. And the thing that deep down we all know in our heart of hearts is what we crave. The thing that will satisfy us, as Claire hinted in her little talk about the empty tomb, filling what can be the emptiness in our lives. God longs to fill that. And when he does our life will be transformed. So Jesus dying for the world was all about love. Jesus showed his love by dying on the cross. Love was the motivation for him and for the Father to remove that barrier with mankind so that we could gain for ourselves what we could not gain otherwise. He gave us the freedom to receive their love and to love them back. So my question to us right now is this. Do you know that love? Do you know that God desperately 
totally, unconditionally loves you. Every one of us, as an individual person with all our failings, all our quirks, do you know that he sent his son to die for you? And that out of love, he has given you the greatest gift imaginable. So, the second question then is, what is that gift? What is on offer to us through this first Easter weekend? What did it achieve? And the answer can be reduced to yet another single four-letter word. Life. Life is what we've been given. And the metaphor of the seed also helps us in understanding that. Now, my knowledge of biology is pretty limited, but what I do know is that in agriculture and in human and animal reproduction, a seed does so wonderfully lead to life. Even my daughter knows that. She's got a little sweet pea plant growing in our kitchen that she made at preschool. And it's an amazing thing, isn't it? How a seed can become something as big as a a vast towering tree or even a vast towering rugby playing man. It's incredible, but it's true. But what is the life that Jesus is talking about? Well, John 3.16 told us that it's eternal life. It's life that doesn't end. It's about not perishing. And we all know, don't we, what a an unpleasant odour of something perishing can produce. Um, I've known that smell over the years uh, when I open my kitchen on occasions. I think typically it's a sort of mushy bit of cucumber. You recognise that smell? Uh, And it's so easy to happen, isn't it, in that salad drawer at the bottom of the fridge. It's unpleasant. Now, we also, of course, uh, perish, maybe not in the same way. Not many of us are mushy, at least not in that sense. But we do wear out. And ultimately, of course, it leads to death, albeit later for many than it used to. But Jesus promises something beyond, doesn't he? A new imperishable body, one that doesn't have a shelf life, one that will not ever deteriorate. And how do we know that he was right to say that we would receive those things? Because he himself was the firstborn from among the dead, because he rose on that first Easter morning, showing us that we too can have resurrected bodies. We too can live beyond the grave. And you know, one of the greatest things about the Christian faith is that the thing we most need to be certain of, which is that Jesus rose from the dead, is the thing that the evidence is most overwhelming in support of. In fact, there is no compelling explanation other than what the Bible teaches us, that Jesus rose from the dead. There's no historical doubt, ask any historian, that Jesus lived, that he died at the hands of the Jews under the authority of the Romans. Both wanted rid of him, and so neither had the motive to hide his body Uh, Because uh, when the followers of Jesus started claiming he could rise from the dead, they would simply produce it, wouldn't they? They wouldn't keep it hidden. Equally, the Roman soldiers had no incentive to hide the body. But crucially, the disciples had no incentive to hide the body. What happened to most of them? They were martyred. Why would they die for a lie? Why would they endure beatings, imprisonment, persecution for something they knew was not true. 
And why on earth would the church, which is now something in the region of two billion people, have grown to that point? Why would so many people claim to have a relationship with the risen Jesus if he had not risen from the dead? It simply isn't plausible. None of that could have happened unless the one explanation that makes sense of it all was true. Jesus is risen. The disciples would have remained demoralised. Jesus would have gone down as a failure in history instead of the most influential person who ever lived. Do we believe in the resurrection? Absolutely. Do we believe that we can live beyond death? Of course we do. But here's the interesting thing. It wasn't just eternal life that Jesus talked about. He was also talking about something that could start now. This is how Jesus put it in another famous passage, John 10, verse 10. He said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So what is life then that Jesus is talking about? Yes, it's new life. Jesus said famously, we must be born again. Yes, it's spiritual life. It's about a relationship with God. God in us by his Holy Spirit. Yes, it's all of those things. And then it brings life now alive. This isn't just pie in the sky when we die. Jesus offers us a life that is transformed now with new purpose, new joy, new security, new peace, new companionship, a new family, character transformation as we become new people living in new ways, with new fruitfulness as we play our part in God's purposes for the world, showing his love to a world that so desperately needs to see it and hear about it. A life where we walk with God every day and we see him directing our steps in remarkable ways. If anyone wants to know more about that life that Jesus was offering, do come and talk to me or Claire or anyone else you know might be able to help you after the service. Do you know this life, this eternal life, this life in all its fullness? Have you experienced it? If not, that is the greatest decision that you could ever make. That is the greatest gift you will ever be offered. So how then? Our third and final point. How do we get this gift? How do we open it? How do we receive it? How does this new life begin? Well, again, that verse, John 3.16, put the answer very simply, didn't it? Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. But the rest of the Bible makes clear, actually, this isn't just about head knowledge. It's not just intellectually consenting to the conception that Jesus rose from the dead. There are numerous people that do that. But actually, it's heart knowledge. It's to say that if Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, who died for us, who rose again and offers us the way to live offers us eternal life, who calls us to follow him, who the disciples declare to be Lord, well then the way we show our belief in him 
is to follow their example and to say that if Jesus is God, then he needs to be my God, my Lord, my Saviour. No other response makes any sense. So, what about us? Where do we stand? The great symbol of beginning the Christian journey is baptism, isn't it? Especially with adult baptism. What happens is people are lowered into a pool and it symbolises being lowered into the grave. And it captures that sense that when we come to faith, when we follow Jesus, we are laying aside, we are dying to an old way of living where we live in in independence to God, where we say, I'm going to go my own way. We die to that. And then just as Jesus rose from the grave, we come out of the water and we say, I have risen to new life with him. (coughs) Eternal life. A life where Jesus is our Lord, our Saviour and our Master. And we say, you know what's best for us. You made us. You know the purposes you have for us. You know what will fulfill us. And I'm going to choose to follow you. And I'm going to receive that fullness of life, that gift of love, that forgiveness, that new purpose, that new status as an adopted child of God. And I'm going to live the life that you made me for. To walk with you. To talk with you. And to know you holding me fast. Guiding my steps in everything that I do. That is the gift. That is what Easter offers us. And that is what Jesus calls us to. So... This Easter day, I want to invite us just to take a minute or two, just to think about where we're at in relation to those Easter events. Do we believe that Jesus lived, died and rose again? And do we believe that he did that for us in love to give us life? And will we choose to follow him and to ask him to show us what that means not to tell him what we think we want it to be so let's take a minute or two just to silently reflect on where we're at you might want to invite God just to speak to you as you take that opportunity we believe that he speaks and when we invite him to he guides our thoughts he touches our hearts and he draws us to respond to him. So let's take that time now, and then I'll pray for us all.
Father God, thank you that you love every single one of us. You know everything about us. You know our hopes and our fears. You know our joy and our sorrow. Father, we offer you our lives again. Would you draw us to walk with you, to talk with you, to trust in you, and to be used as a beacon of light, as a person who offers love and offers hope to our friends, our families, our communities. Father, would you use us to transform our world? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a song now that is very much celebrating what we've just been thinking about. It's all about the joy of walking with Jesus, of thanking God for all that he's done for us.